All right. Um, tonight, you'll have to bear with me. I'm recovering from a chest cold, so I sound a little funny. My voice goes in and out. We are going to look at kind of a crazy passage of scripture tonight. Um, I will give you what we do know for sure about this and some history, um, but in terms of what exactly it means, there is a lot of speculation. So if you go away from here with a different interpretation than somebody next to you or from me, like that's perfectly okay. When I was reading commentaries, multiple commentaries disagree with each other. There are a bunch of them that you know, give you three or four different interpretations within the same commentary, and they'll make an argument for one over the other, but everybody just who is at least slightly humble will say, you know what, we really don't know exactly what this means. Um, we can try and interpret it based on other scripture and other passages and try to put it, piece it all together, and that's the best way to do it. But just know that if you disagree or if you have a different interpretation, that's perfectly okay for tonight, all right? Um, and with that, uh, who wants to remind us where we were last week? Leprosy sucks. Yeah, leprosy. Remember, we finished with 10 lepers who were healed. One of them returns. Um, and we looked at um, sort of a section of four different ideas that it looks like Luke has probably smashed together. They could have been together, but they're so disjointed that we probably put them together. And so we talked ultimately about our response to God um, and looked at that one leper and how he saw that his healing was done by Jesus. And although Jesus has sent him to the temple in accordance with law, he, he stopped on the road and returned to give praise to God for Jesus and what Jesus has done. And so this leper has connected God and God's healing and what we're going to talk about tonight as kingdom um, and kingdom ethic and power and all that um, with Jesus. So that connection has happened last week. And we didn't necessarily say those words last week. We're going to talk about that this week and how they connect um, as we go through the night. So, um, Joey, if you would read our scripture for us, that would be great. Being asked by the Pharisee when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his death. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed? On that day, let the one who is, in, who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, will not, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. All right. Thank you, Joey. Okay. Let's go to the very beginning. We're going to take this verse by verse, then we'll come back and talk about 
interpretations and potential meaning. Okay, so I think that's interesting, and I think everybody here is going to find it interesting, and I'm sure there'll be some thoughts in the room. So um, this first section, this is verses 20 and 21. Um, they sort of form a section by themselves, separate from what we're going to get into. And so as we all do always, we're, what's the setting here? Who are we talking to? Pharisees. Okay, so we've shifted back. Remember last week we were talking to disciples. And so for these two verses here, we're shifting back and Jesus is addressing Pharisees. And so Pharisees have come and asked him a question, right? Um, this question, despite the fact there are lots of uh, instances where we have great tension between the Pharisees and they're after Jesus and trying to prove him wrong, this question doesn't seem to indicate a hostile intent from these Pharisees. So we might have a different group somewhere you know, further down on the journey. Um, there is always an underlying tension between Jesus and religious authority, of course. Um, but this question isn't phrased in such a way that may, would make us think they're out to get him in some ways. They're asking, it, this is phrased in more of a legitimate question, asking what's going on. And so what's the question that they actually are, are posing to Jesus? When will the kingdom of God come? Sure. Okay, what, what's interesting about that question and the way you've interpreted it, and it's not wrong, is when will it come, right? They are asking the question from a place that assumes that kingdom will come. Like, it's not here. Right? When will the kingdom come? And, and this, when it would come, that's future also. So they've, they've asked this question, and in the Greek, it's, it's a future tense. So they're coming to Jesus asking when this kingdom will be coming, that he's been talking about, that they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. Right? They've had prophecies and through prophets throughout the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. They're waiting for it. And so the, it appears as though these Pharisees are coming um, with a decent intent, asking when, when is this going to happen. And so Jesus, as he always does, has a smart reply. Um, what is his reply? No, the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed. Yeah, what does that mean? Uh, can't see it with like your eye. Okay. I mean, they're looking for him to set up like an earthly kingdom that looks something like what they're used to. Sure. Right, right. And we've talked about that before. Nate said that they're looking for a, a kingdom, a physical kingdom like Rome that's going to take over and, you know, reinstate Israel as a state, this sort of warrior king that's coming as Messiah. Yeah. I can kind of see them asking this sort of maliciously too, like, okay, if you're the king, then when's the kingdom coming? Like, okay. how are you going to set this up? Sure. It definitely could be there. I, I guess what I'm saying is that the, the, there's no reason necessarily to read that from the Greek, but okay. it could be. Sure. So I'm not going to negate the fact or say that they're, right. they're not. I mean, yeah. we know how Pharisees deal with Jesus. They could be a little smart with it. We don't know. And so what they're looking for are signs, right? So they're, they're asking Jesus, I, you know, and, and they're, they're asking Jesus for the signs that would mark the coming of the kingdom so that they can be ready in the future. Um, just in the same way that there were signs that foretold his birth, where the, the wise men come following a star, all that was built into Old Testament prophecy. And so they were, they were looking for those signs. Same sort of thing. They're asking for those signs in the sky, signs of the time kind of things. When, when is it going to look like when the kingdom comes? And as Chris said, he's saying that, no, 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 there's none of that, right? It doesn't come in any way that's physical, um, that is visible, that is a big sign. It's not like there's a, you know, a marching army that's coming over the hill that's going to tell you that the time is here, right? And then he goes on to say, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, there it is. So he's saying you can't really point to it necessarily as a physical manifestation. And then what does he say? So he's, he's just told us what the kingdom is not, what the signs are not. Now he's giving us a positive statement about what it is or what it's like. It's within you. It's within you, all right? That, that's present tense. Okay. 
Right. Which is different than the future okay. tense of the sure. question. Absolutely. That's a good pickup. So what does that tell you? It's already here. Duh. Okay. Duh. <laughs> I don't know. Bart, what is his response? Before we hold the kingdom of God is in mystery. Okay. We're going to come back to that. Uh, because what you said is an interpretation of what he said. Um, let's go ahead and do it over here because you brought it up. Um, that word, okay, and I'll tell you, this is, a, this, <laughs> this is an interpretation of the word too, okay? So you're not wrong. Here's one of, the way, one of the places where if you go away from tonight thinking something different, it's fine, okay? Um, this translation has given us in the midst of you. Somebody else have a different translation? Who has the message first? The, the least literal of all of them. But good nonetheless. I'm sorry? Okay. Mackenzie, you got it? I know you got a pink one. Uh, so it would be the among you. Among you, okay. So that's sort of similar to in the midst of you. Like, yeah, all right, but not necessarily within you. What did you say? Okay, somebody have, anybody else have anything different? Yours says within? What's yours, King James? Okay. In your grasp, okay. All right. That's all three of them. That's all the three big interpretations of what this word means, okay? The first is that it is inside of you. That's what he's saying, that um, you're not going to find external signs, you're not going to see anything in the sky or the stars, that the kingdom is to be found inside of you. And as Jen pointed out, it's presently here. We'll come back and talk about problems. The next one, uh, what translation do you have, Megan? Are you looking at? New Living. New Living, okay. And what does it say? It says um, it can be interpreted Okay, so you've got both of those in there. <clears throat> so the idea that it is around you, just waiting for you to grasp it. So it's, it's there within your grasp right now. Again, presently, not, we're not talking about some future. All three of these interpretations recognize that we're talking about something that's going on now. And that ultimately, as Jen pointed out, it's a big flip. They're anticipating that the kingdom is in the future, and Jesus is responding with, no, kingdom is present. And now the discussion is, how is kingdom present? And, and that goes to how we're translating this word. Um, this one is the third one that says the kingdom of the God is in, in the midst of you. So it's similar but different because in the midst of you is sort of before you, not necessarily in you, which was the first one. And the grasp one implies by its statement that it's within your grasp that you have something to do that can grab it. This one implies that it is. The kingdom exists, period. It's not waiting for you to grasp it. It's not waiting for you to accept it into your heart. It just is in the midst of you. Does that make sense? So they're all similar, but we're going to come back to the end and talk about why they're important, and I'll tell you which one I think. But um, again, you're free to disagree with me. It, they have implications, and, and some of it's going to seem like a heady discussion, but it does matter which we think it is, okay, in a big way. And so I'll, well, let's leave it with the three interpretations at the moment and move on and we'll come back. That's where we end, is back here, because this is really, where the really cool stuff comes, I think, for when we talk about kingdom, because that's a big buzzword these days, and for good reason. Let's flip to the next slide, if you would, Joey. Okay, what's he do now? Uh, Done with Pharisees, okay. Probably still within earshot, all right, they're still there, they're still going to hear this, but he's turned to address his disciples now. So we've got a different audience hearing this. And what does he say to them? Your desire to see one of the days of some man who will not see it. 
Right. What does that mean? What is it? What are they looking for? I'm asking here, what does it mean to, to want to see this, the days of the Son of Man? Is he talking about Antichrist? I think he's talking about the return, right? Like him coming back? Maybe. Okay. That's what you take? I got a bunch of nods on that one. Because they're, they're probably having those days right now, right? Like, where is their... Well, sure, they're having, yeah, he's talking to his disciples. Yes, he's, they're having days with the Son of Man. So everybody knows that the Son of Man is Jesus' turn for himself, especially in Luke. Right, but across the Gospels, he'll refer to himself as Son of Man. We're talking about Jesus, so the days of Jesus. The question is, what are we talking about? Are we talking about an apocalyptic day of judgment? Um, are we talking about the sort of the time that the Messiah was with us? That's when I got lots of nods. And what was the second one? Somebody said something. You, what did you say? I just thought I was talking about like, you know, other... Like, Antichrist. Like, you know, like calling back to the other scriptures where it's like, people will be doing this and... Sure. Not. Well, I, I think that is an interesting parallel discussion to be had with this. Okay. Especially when, we go, when it says, um, look here, look there. Like, we could say that the look here, look there is them pointing to oh, the no. Antichrist necessarily. Follow that part is the reason I thought that. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is not wrong. Okay. Okay. Um, but... What we're talking about here is they are, they're going to long. They're going to want to see the days, right? The days of the Son of Man. And um, I, I'm of the mind, here's again, you can disagree here, right? There's a lot of disagreement potential here tonight. The, who, who has sort of the day of judgment coming of, was it Eucharist? Like when yeah, he comes when back? Um, that's just the only reason because that's what mine reads. Okay, and, and that's a, that, that is a feasible, potential, logical, reasonable interpretation. Um, the time of judgment is often referred to as the day of the Son of Man, okay, that it re refers to this sort of period of time of, of Jesus' return. It is important here that we don't have day of Son of Man. We have days. And so this is a different phrase altogether. And most scholars will say that what we're, what we're saying here is that he's telling his disciples that they're going along, like Mike said, for the days that he was with them, for these three years they spent. So he's, you know, we can read into this knowing how the story ends. He's going to die. He's going to be ascended right after his resurrection. He's going to go away, and there's going to be time in their life when they're going to wish, sort of long for the good old days, or wish they had Jesus around with him. Is it like a okay. him saying, hey, I'm not going to be here? Um, well, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's definitely uh, foreshadowing the fact that he's going to be gone, right? We know that. Do they know that? Listen to this, I don't know. I don't know if they pick up on that or not. They will. Hopefully. They'll get it. <laughs> They're going to get it at some point. and understand what he's talking about. And then here we get into this point um, where he says, they will say to you, they just being people, all right, look there, look here, all right, and the look here, look there is, I found Messiah. Here's Messiah. Here's, here's the second coming of Christ, right? And he says, don't go follow them. And there, we could read that as a warning against following Antichrist. That certainly, that instruction does show up in other texts. Um, I think later in Luke even. There is a warning against that to be careful and cautious who you follow. There'll be plenty coming, they're coming, you know, plenty coming in the name, claiming that they're coming in the name of, of Christ, and they're not. Okay, so you've got to be, a, be a weary and alert and test the spirits, we're told. Um, what he's saying here is just blanketly don't follow them, all right? Because it's not like... 
Let's get to the next one. It says, for as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Different than days. All right, so here we're talking about sort of the second coming. Son of Man in his day. That's the sort of return judgment phrase. Whereas days seems to indicate this time with Jesus. I know we're into sort of interpretation tonight, and, and that needs to be said. And so what he's saying is don't... It, the search for the return of Christ, his second coming, is not something where you're not going to see it and somebody else is going to find it and say, come look at it. It's going to be visible for everyone. It, it's gonna, when, when I come, no matter where I come physically, everybody's going to know. It's not okay. going to be a guy with a math problem saying... <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Everybody will know when I show up. And remember, in other, in other places, Jesus will say that he himself does not know the time. So the idea that we could know the time is kind of ludicrous based on that statement, I think. But clearly here he's saying it's, it's something that everyone is going to know has happened. This is, this is going to be a show for everybody. You're going to know when I show back up. So don't worry about somebody over here saying, oh, I found Jesus, or I found the next Messiah, or I found, you know, like, it's, it's going to be a big deal. You'll know. And then he, he throws in here, he says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is the fifth time in Luke's gospel that Jesus has told us, foreshadowed specifically, told us about his suffering and his death. Is he okay. talking about the Jews specifically when he says this generation? No, that's a very good question, and no, that applies to everybody. Yeah. Okay, so that, does anybody understand that question? Why, why did you ask that question? Um, because there's, I mean, sim, almost like similarly with the Pharisee question that I asked earlier, that there's this thought that Jesus was coming to set up his earthly kingdom, and because that's what the Jews were waiting for, was the right. Messiah to come back. And, and so, you know, they rejected, when he couldn't deliver that, they rejected it. And then there's the whole scripture about, let my blood be on you and your children. And so I didn't know if he was saying, like, the okay. Jews will be the ones that reject me, and that has to happen first, or yeah. if he was saying everyone is going to yeah. reject me. Um, and it's an important question because it definitely goes towards how we as Christians view Jews, especially first century Jews, right? Are the Jews the one that crucified our Savior? You know, when the Passion of the Christ movie came out, everybody was yelling about how anti-Semitic it was because it showed that the Jews crucified Jesus. And what Jesus is saying right here is that the entire generation is responsible for rejecting and crucifying him. It's not just the Jews, okay? We, we all are responsible for this. And Obviously, you can't see it in the English, but in the Greek, that term is inclusive of everyone. That's not just to the tribe, particular tribe or the nation of Israel. So it's a good question. Thank you for asking it. And so right there in that one little sentence, we have sort of interjected in all of this. Oh, by the way, while we're sitting here talking about the end of the world and the second coming of the Messiah, don't forget, I have to suffer and die and be rejected. Like there, there's a big piece in here that you need not forget. And it, it kind of appears and then disappears real quick. And then it goes back into sort of these apocalyptic prophecies, right? It says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the sons of man. What, um, what was Noah's, what's the story about Noah? What's he talking about? Yes, Noah made a boat, right? <laughs> he goes on to tell us kind of what he's talking about, right? They're eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. What was the world like in those days? Tell me more about not good. Mike says not good. Like now? <laughs> Far worse. Categorize it. Tell me about it. Describe it. Every kind of sexual perversion that you can think 
Okay. Immoral would be an understatement, right? What was the big problem at the core, at the root of all of it? Why did God have to bring the flood? Was it war? Because like it's foreign nations over God's name. Symptom. What we've described here is symptom, symptomatic of the overall rejection of, yeah. of God, like yeah. his ways. All right. Same thing that we're going to see when we get into, when we talk about the story of Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, we're manifesting sin in physical, wicked ways, right? But ultimately what we're talking about is a rejection of God. And so he's saying that just in the days of Noah, people had rejected me. They'd gone about their daily lives with no thought to me, right? They weren't paying any attention, and wham, here it came. They were laughing at Noah, but Noah was right. And real quick, they found out what the real story was, right? Put the slide for me, Joey, if you would. All right, and it says likewise, all right, so we're, here's another example, right? And we get into Lot. Somebody tell me about Lot. Say the same thing? Yeah. If they didn't leave, they would have been destroyed. Yeah. But when they did leave, they made it out alive, and then his wife turned into the salt because she looked back. Yeah, all true. Let's fill in the story just a little bit. Um, <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah, okay. Everybody's heard the term sodomy, like you've heard Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Two uh, sort of pillars of wickedness in the Old Testament, all right? God decides he's going to wipe them out, similar, similar to the way that he wiped out the entire world um, when the flood came, right? Um, long story short, God decides he's going to destroy it, um, sends a couple angels to the town. They get Lot and his family out, so they, they're leaving, all right? They book it out, and so... Same things going on as Nate said, like these are wicked, evil towns, read, rejection of God, going about their own business, not paying any attention to God, all right, no relationship with him, not walking with him, not following commandments, none of it, just living their own life, all right, oblivious to God, and here comes, in this instance, not water, but basically volcanic fire that destroys these two towns. And then, what happened with Lot's wife, Nate? She turned and looked back. Okay, there was an instruction to leave. Don't look back, don't leave anything, get your, don't even get your stuff, just go. Go, 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 book it to the hills. Don't even look back. And she decided she wanted to look back and check the things out, the destruction. You know, so she, she stops in the middle of fleeing and turns around, and because God had instructed her not to, we're told she turned to a pillar of salt. And so in between those two statements, we get this, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let, one, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away, and likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back, remember Lot's wife. So in that day, when we have the second coming, all right, we're going to get to, in a minute, what that means. Um, remember Lot's wife. Don't go back if you're on your house, the top of your house. People worked on the top of their house. I don't know, did the laundry or whatever they did. But um, it was a place where you spent some time of your day, right? It's not like a pitched roof like us. Uh, there's a flat roof, okay? So you're hanging out up there, doing whatever you're doing. Don't go get your stuff in your house. Go. In the same way that I told Lot to go, go. And if you're in the field, you better book it. Don't go back to the house. Don't go back to your town. Don't, don't worry about anything behind you. Just go. And then that warning about Lot's wife. that Just go. Next screen, please, Joy. All right. Whoever seeks to preserve his life, how does that relate to what we just said? They're looking back. People, right. If you want to preserve your life, it's your world. Your life is telling you to leave your life and you want to go. Sure. What'd you say? I said your stuff. Your stuff, right. Your possessions. Your belongings, right? Whoever seeks to preserve your worldly life, as Bart said, will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And here, this is an instruction we've gotten a number of times from Christ, this idea that uh, the first part is obviously, obviously physical, worldly possessions and 
your security here in this world, the second being your spiritual, more real, more important life. So if you lose the first, you can find your second, but if you try and save the first, you ultimately lose the second. That's how that works. It says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. Um, in Matthew and Mark it says they're grinding in a mill, so they're working. Remember the millstone? I don't know if that really has anything to do with it, but it's an interesting uh, parallel or sort of callback. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And so what is he saying here? Yeah, and then um, we're going to come back to that. Hang on to that. Um, he says, and then he said to them, and this is sort of a little disjointed, but still on point. He says, where, Lord? Why would they ask that question? Where are we going? Why would they ask that question? I mean, what has he just told them? Before that. What has he told them about the second coming? It's gonna, everyone's going to know. Everyone's going to Yeah, and so is, is this a reading into it here, but is this a, a dense question? Like he just told them you're going to know. Like it's not here or there or any particular place. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like this is, I don't know that we, we know exactly where this question's, where its motivation's coming from. It seems on the face of it, it's kind of a dense question. Like their response to all of that is, okay, where? You moron, I just told you, like, right? Cool. <laughs> yeah, and his response is uh, certainly morbid. He says, where the corpse is, there, there the vultures will gather. What is he saying with that? Vultures like dead bodies. Vultures like dead bodies. That is very true. That's important to understand the metaphor. <laughs> like the message, or the New Living says, just as the gathering of vultures shows there's a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Yeah, that's what it means. That's a crazy paraphrase. <laughs> and and not, not at all literal, but yes, that's, that is the point. I mean, what... He's, again, pointing to the fact that you'll know it. Just the way we walk down the road and you see vultures, you know there's a corpse, right? Like, everybody's going to know what's going on. Like, everybody that's around sees vultures, they know somebody's dead on the road. You, you're going to know. So, I have to ask the question. Okay. Who's taken? All right, hang on. Okay. Okay. I want to finish up. All right, here's, here comes the fun conversation, right? When we're all going to walk out of here with every one of us a different opinion, okay? But... Why does he choose this statement at the end? Trickery. Trickery? Tomfoolery? <laughs> He's just trying to be a jokester? He's, uh, that's the way. Jesus. I mean, he could. There are lots of. He's riddling them. There are lots of signs to things that we all see, right? I mean, he could have picked anything or lots of things. Why do you pick this one? Um, it, it is a gruesome life and death metaphor. There does come with <clears throat> the second coming of man, and we're talking about the day of judgment, right? So there does come with it death. All right, so that's sort of in that metaphor. I mean, and we've just talked about Noah, where lots of people died, and Sodom and Gomorrah, where lots of people died. All right, so there definitely is in everything that Jesus is talking about, this sort of second coming, right, the day of the Son of Man, an implication, I think a clear implication that with that is going to come some not nice times, right? Some people are ultimately going to die as a result. So let's get back up to this. One, two situations where there are two people, one's taken, one's left behind. What's going on? Good question. Good question, Nate says. I, I wanted to find a term for you because I'm likely to say it without necessarily meaning to. Um, that, that word is eschatology. Um, the, the word for sort of the end days, what we're talking about here, 
that period is known as the eschaton. Okay, so when, when you hear me say eschatology, we're talking about the theology of this end period. I'm likely to throw it out. I'm sorry if you don't know what that means, so I wanted to find that for you. So we're talking here about eschatology, and one of the theories of end times prophecy is what, Nate? What's the, what's the left? Nate said the left behind. Has anybody seen those books on the shelf, especially at like Walmart? It's like Tim LaHaye and another guy write them that they're called the Left Behind series. It's fiction, by the way. <laughs> All right. They even say it's fiction, but it's based on the theory of what? Sort of an R. Rapture. The rapture. Okay. What's the rapture, Nate? Uh, which version? <laughs> uh, the, Just a watered-down basic version. Uh, Jesus comes back, and the Christians are zapped up to meet him in the air, and they disappear. And everything goes crazy afterwards. <laughs> yeah. That? yeah. That is a theological seminary term as well. Yeah. Zap head. Okay, but yes, in, its, in, a, in a basic form, the rapture, theories about the rapture say that when the day of the Son of Man comes, Christ returns, before there's massive destruction, there's what's known as the rapture. And God's going to take, Christ is going to take the Christians, the people left that follow him, and rapture them away into the sky before all of this death and destruction that's to come, the next flood, the fire, whatever, whatever that ends up looking like, right? That we're all going to be, those of us who follow Christ, believe in Christ, whatever, raptured away, okay? That's a, that's a literal reading of this, that one would be there and they're just taken away, right? At this point, if we take that from here, and many people do, and you're not wrong if you do, necessarily, but that's a literal reading of this. All right, I'm, I'm walking away from uh, commentaries, because a lot of commentaries won't go here. This is Sam talking now, so feel free to disagree with me. When I read this, these passages of scriptures, there's a lot of metaphor going on. There's a lot of, I mean, this is the way Jesus talks, right? He do, very rarely does he tell us literally what he means, literally what the kingdom is like. I mean, he talks about mustard seeds. The kingdom is not a mustard seed. And if, and if you want to take this literally, like, I, you're fine to do that. We don't know. But we need to keep in mind that this idea of rapture comes, Bart, you know a good bit about this, right? There are probably some people in the room who actually know more about this than me. So I'm going to defer to some of these people who know this. Bart, what, what, how would you read this? Well, I take it all together because... To me, when he says you will look for the days of man, like, I took that as now, like how everything is when he's around, okay. um, and you will not see it. I think it's be for the people that are left. Like, the people will want to have those days, and they won't even see it. Like, there will be such things happening. So, yeah, I kind of do take this as a rapture thing, but it could also... I guess what I'm saying is, is it, if, if we don't take it literally, how else can we take it? And it could be just another explanation or metaphor used to say that it's coming quickly, that it's going to come upon you. I mean, the same way that he talked about the flood, the same way he talked about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, it could just be that all he's saying is, it's going to happen, it's going to be sudden. And we know from other discussions and other statements of Jesus and stories that he's going to separate the chaff from the wheat, he's going to separate the goats from the sheep, right? He's going to separate the weeds and the tares from the... The harvest, like so, there's definitely a separation going on, and so it could be nothing more than that. So I don't know that we necessarily need to read in rapture, although you can read in rapture. All right, I'm not discounting it. Yes, did you want to say something? However, okay. The thing that threw, because that's how I was raised too. That way. Raised. Oh. Okay. Rapture. This is like one of the big ways that like 
I mean, I just call it left behind theology because that's the easiest way. Yeah. That's what I think most evangelical, like mainline, like this is just what they believe is that Jesus comes back, we meet him in the air, we're yeah. gone, whatever. Um, learning that that, I think it's 200, it might only be 100 years old, that theology really became popular. And when I, one of the main things that really changed my thinking about like eschatology in general, and not necessarily that I have a firm belief one way or the other now, but it's just that what's really interesting to me about this is that this is often used in those circles to say, see, this is when Jesus comes back and the Christians are taken. However, if you read it, it presents some really interesting problems of its own because he says, it'll be the same way as it was for Noah as it is when Jesus comes back, when, I, when the Son of Man returns. And he says... The people were partying and marrying and whatever, and they were swept away. They were the ones that were swept away. Like there was one, there were a certain the people that were left mm. were were Noah and his family. Right. In the same way with Lot, is like the people that were destroyed, the people that were taken was the town. The people that was left was Lot. Right. And so that's like that presents some really strange yeah. questions. Yeah. And well, I'm glad you said that because does it say which is judged and which has gone to paradise? Who's taken? Are you being taken to judgment or are you being taken to paradise? It doesn't say that. All right? We assume, rapture theology assumes that you're being taken to meet Jesus in the sky and those that are left are being, as Nate said. There's an assumption there, but it doesn't say that. Yeah, because it doesn't say that the believers were taken and the non-believers No, it doesn't. It doesn't say that the non-believers were taken. But in, it, when it, it does compare, though, and that's where the problem comes from, because in the comparisons, the righteous yeah. ones are the ones that stay. Right. They're, that's, they're that's the ones not, still around. That's not what you're normally taught in that like line of thinking. You're normally taught that the ones that stay are the unrighteous ones, and they get judged, and all the bad things happen, and whatever. But I mean, comparatively, the ones that stay are was righteous lot, and so I had to throw that in there. No, lot didn't stay. Lot left. He was the only one that was left there and alive, and the same way with Noah. Like he, they're the ones that escaped. Like. The ones that were, because like the language says like, for Noah, it says, and they were swept away. And the same language here is like, they were taken away. They, the, it's the same thing between the two. It was weird. It was like, it was a oh, shocker for me. That's just, yeah. that's, I'm not saying that that's right either. I'm yeah. saying that that was a huge question that I right. had never, no one ever presented that to me. They right. always just said, this yeah. is the Christians that get taken. And I was like, whoa, hold on a second. If one is taken and one is left, there is clearly only one that was left at the at Noah's flood. Yeah, you know, he was the only one left at the end of the whole thing. But you can also read it. I think what Joey's saying is that the one left in the current situation were ultimately the ones that were judged. Right. Like sure. right. Noah was taken by the ark, Lot was taken out, but and the so That's it's how read that can still stand. Right, right, and and so I mean we're back to this point that it's interpretation. Right. All right, so we can we can disagree here. All right, that's, and that's fine. But we need to talk about it because Jesus talked about it. As messy as it is. So let, let me ask you, if this is metaphorical, then like what, how, should, how are we looking at that? Like, um, like forget the rapture crap. Like, yeah, well, and I think that goes back to a point, uh, or one of the questions that I had is, the, does it matter? Sure. That's what I was gonna say, could this just be a metaphor for how quick it's gonna come? One will be left. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, Jesus isn't, doesn't really spend a whole lot of talk, time talking about Judgment Day. We have a couple different spots where he does address it, 
but it, it never plays big into his message, into his gospel, into the life that he wants and the message that he leaves for, his, for the New Testament church. You know, it, it's not something that comes up. Uh, obviously, it comes up in Revelation. That's a whole other discussion, that book. Well, if he explained it clearly right here at the end of this, that wouldn't make sense with what he said at the beginning when he said you're not going to see it. Okay, let's go back there. Because... See, that's what I was kind of thinking, too, because when the disciples, he says, okay, all this is going to happen, and when the disciples say, well, where, Lord? I mean, it's kind of like what the Pharisees were asking, well, where is it? Yeah. It's almost like, to me, his response is, hey, if you want to stick around and... and I almost took it as, I guess, what I would consider smart aleck. Okay. I'm not saying that's how it is, but that's, that's kind of what first helped into Okay. We're going to come back here because um, this, this, I think, out of all of it is the, the most interesting part. Um, this is supremely important, paramount to understanding Luke and what Luke means by kingdom and ultimately what Luke means by gospel. Somebody tell me about kingdom. This is something that I, when we started Luke, I told you we would be sort of developing ideas about and the theology of kingdom as we go through Luke. And many people will say that this is the crux, the centerpiece to Lucan kingdom theology. What do you know about kingdom? When I say that word, what pops into your head? Love. Sorry? Love. Okay. Okay. What are you thinking, Nate? Thinking uh, first, it says the kingdom of the kingdom is, I think, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Okay. At first, and then. Well, okay. When I say kingdom, what do you think, Chris? Peace. Okay. What about kingdom as reality? The, the buzzword, the phrase, the idea that has become very popular in the, the last 10 years at least, probably a little longer than that, is that we are kingdom-minded people and we are going to bring about the kingdom in the world. Like, what, what are we talking about when we say those things? As a community, we all work together. Um, like a real, in a real sense of like, like when I think about that, I envision like, like the 1800s when like small towns would like, if you needed something, there was like that one family that did everything. You'd go to that family, you know what I mean? Like everyone kind of had their part in the community and you did that one thing and like everybody worked together. Okay. I'm just thinking Lord's Prayer. Like okay. the kingdom come, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like that to me is the most concise, like. And what does that mean to you? Just whatever is going on, I know this is really loose language, but whatever is going on in heaven should be going on here. Like we've got the the mandate to bring like anything that like that reality is greater than this reality, and that's we are the brokers of that for the world. Does everybody understand what they just said? If you don't, that's fine. Please let me know because we need to talk about that. If you don't, I'm going to rephrase it. Tell me if I'm saying the same thing you just said. Many people, I'll tell you, I'll give you an alternate interpretation of the Lord's Prayer, and that is that when Jesus taught his disciples to say that prayer, and we talked about this when we did the Lord's Prayer in Luke, what he was teaching them to pray for was the day when he would come back and the heavenly kingdom would be bought on earth. And so 
there are competing interpretations even of the Lord's Prayer. What I've just explained to you is the idea that what we are praying for is this future date and that it be brought near to us. What Nate has described is that we understand there is heavenly kingdom, God's perfect reign, there is future reign of kingdom, right? But we're praying for that to manifest itself here and now in the present day. Explain to me what you mean by, when you, by the statement, um, we are brokers of that kingdom reality. Um, am I allowed to reference the first part of this passage? Sure, reference anything you want. Uh, just when he said, like, I think that what Jesus is saying, like, the quote that sticks out the most to me whenever I think about this is a pastor that I really like was said that Jesus, like, the word repent means to change the way you think more than right. anything actually means to, to change your, percept your perspective. And so, um, like he was saying, you know, you have to repent, you have to change the way that I think because what you're used to is not, like I brought my kingdom with me is the sentence that I always think. And so okay. I think, I know we might be getting ahead, but when he's saying it's in your midst or it's within your grasp or it's here, he's saying like, I just, all I know is that, or what I believe is that when Jesus came, he brought his kingdom with him, eventually left that to us. And that's where we sit in the seat of, you know, co-laboring with him to bring about the reality of heaven to earth now, as much okay. as we can. Sure. Does everybody understand that? Yes? Okay. All right, let's go back to this in the midst, in your grasp, within you discussion, okay? Um, if we say it's within you, what does that mean for kingdom? So you give it to us. Okay. You don't have to do anything to get it. Okay. What is the nature of kingdom? Define kingdom for me if it's within you. I think it just goes back to love. That we are all made with love, so love is in us, and we give love that's kingdom. Okay. Um, let's not, I, we won't go down the theo theological rabbit hole on this one. Um, I'll back up and tell you that Jesus never talks about the kingdom being within you. Unless you interpret this one statement that way. There's no other statement that says the kingdom's within you. The Spirit's within you. God is within you, right? Okay, that's, that's definitely true. The kingdom is not something that enters you. The kingdom is something that you enter. And so to say that the kingdom is within you here is not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Define kingdom. Like, forget God right now. Define a kingdom. What is a kingdom? Is it the domain of the king. Right, it's the domain of the king, right? Okay, so when we say kingdom, at its very just definitional level, what we're talking about is the reign of God over his domain, whatever that may be. And so there's, how does that work inside of you? I mean, the kingdom is out and above and around you. Take that together with the fact that he never says anywhere else that the kingdom is within you. He talks a lot about what the kingdom's like. It's like a mustard seed. It's like, you know, all these other things we've talked about before. But the kingdom is also something that we enter into. The kingdom just be like Nate said, repentance, the true meaning of repentance is to change what you think or change what you conceive or whatever. So could it be like something that you enter, you enter a mindset, it's something that's within you as in a mindset? Why? Well, like, I mean, I think, I think that what you just said is true to Christian life, but I don't think that's kingdom. That is a result of kingdom. That is the mindset you take when you enter into kingdom. But kingdom ultimately is the reign of God over his creation. And the gospel message 
is that that reign of God has been passed to Jesus, who now sits at his right hand after the ascension and will come back to judge, which is what we talked about in the second part right here. So kingdom is this reigning of Jesus, ultimately, within a Christian gospel, the reign of Jesus over our life. Who knows what the Shema is? Some of you should. We've talked about this. I might look up Deuteronomy 6.4. While we're looking that up, Jesus gets asked, what is the, the, the most important commandment by a Pharisee? What's his response? Love God, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Okay, we got Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Keep reading. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy, and with all thy might. Okay, keep going. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. We got King James again? Yeah. All right, that's enough. Okay. <laughs> this is known as the Shema, okay? It is the core of the Jewish faith. Um, when we talked about this, we talked about it back when Jesus gets asked the question, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And he recites the Shema. Okay, he doesn't come up with that by himself. It's not out of nowhere. He's affirming the whole of Judaic moral law. Ten commandments, thou shalt love God most, right? That's Shema. That's the core of the faith. And what is important to understand about that is that for the Jewish people, especially the Jewish people of Deuteronomy, they live in a world that is pluralistic. They have many gods. There's a god of this and a god of that, and if you're going to go get water, you have to walk by a field, so you better take a sacrifice for the god of the grain and the god of the weather so that you can you know, make it without a big storm. And then you've got to go, you got to make sure that you uh, take a sacrifice for the river god or it might have been dried up by the time you get there. And so there are all of these gods that, that you need to appease. And so the Shema is radically unique and important within the culture of the day. For us to say there's one God, we kind of get that, right? That's what we brought up, for those of us who have been brought up in any sort of godly home. The idea of monotheism, there is one God, we kind of get. But for the people living here, this is a radical statement about the nature of God. There is one God. He rules over all. There is no other God besides him. Forget the grain god and the road god and the weather god and the, the water god, the river god, you know, whoever, forget them. You got one god. And the Shema is the thing, if you see um, pictures of whether it's Pharisees or even to today, rabbis will carry a box around their wrist and they have scripture in it, that's what's in it. If you visit a Jewish home, even today, you'll see a little box on their doorpost. That's what's in it. Is, is, this, is that also, though, real quick question, yeah. isn't that like sort of also a foreshadowing of the new covenant, too? Because he says that was different because up to this point, the law was written on, on things they could hold. And this is the time when he says, my law will be written in your hearts. Sure. And then, yeah. Okay. Um, and I would say it's, it's always been to be written on your hearts, but it's going to be written on your heart in a new way. What, this is my statement, all right, take it for what it's worth. I see... This statement of Luke about kingdom and the nature of kingdom as important to gospel, as central to gospel as Shema is to Judaic faith. This is, I think in some way, the Shema rephrased for the new covenant. This is Jesus saying, 
Therefore, behold, the kingdom of God, the rule of the one God. Hero Israel, there is only one God. What we're talking about is kingdom. We're not talking about fluffy, lovey, you know, everybody love each other community. That's part of kingdom life. Kingdom is the rule of one God over his domain. And that's why I will say, I will argue that it's not within you. It is also not within your grasp. Why would it not be within your grasp? You're not God. Why? Say, I think you're onto it. Because you're not God. Rephrase it. We're not God. Okay. It's not ours, not our kingdom. It's not ours to grab, is it? No. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. Kingdom is. Kingdom exists. It is here, it is now, it's in our midst. He doesn't care whether, I mean, he cares. But it makes no difference whether you grab it or not. If you don't grab it, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That interpretation is a, God, a question of the sovereignty of God. Does, kingdom only, does God only rule if you reach out and grasp it? Or does God rule, period? And so I, I've, obviously, I'm getting kind of animated about it, but I come down that this is the more accurate translation. It just happens to be the one that is in here. This is the one we've always used. But obviously there are other translations out there. And again, you can disagree with me. But I think for those reasons, one, kingdom is something you enter. It does not enter you. Although the spirit within you is evidence of your being part of the kingdom, right? When you become a, cit- a kingdom citizen, you are graced and given the helper who takes up residence within you. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But kingdom as an idea, as a reality, exists. It is the rule of God. It does not enter you, you enter it. And it is not something that is just, you know, sort of lottie dotty floating out there waiting for you to grasp it. It exists regardless. And so what he's, what he's saying then to the Pharisee is, here it is, right in front of you, embodied in me. It's all around you. It is in your midst. It's not coming with a flash of thunder. And now we have to go back to what uh, Megan was saying. This and the next part are different occurrences. We're talking about different things here. To the Pharisees, he's talking about kingdom, rule of God. To his disciples, he turns around and talks about second coming. And here is where we get this idea that kingdom is both a present reality and a not-yet-to-come reality. That God rules. God is God, regardless. But we don't yet have the physical kingdom, the physical manifestation, the new earth, you know, the lion laying down with the lambs that's coming at his second coming, which is the, the second part that he's talking about. Why would I say that this is so important to Luke and his... I mean, this, is, this ultimately is important to, to the gospel, right? Here, here's the crux of the, the mess. I mean, yes, Jesus came. He loves you. He died for you. Why? Why did he die for you? He back in connection with God. Right. He brings us back into kingdom. So at the heart of the gospel message is an understanding of what kingdom is and what it looks like to be brought back. I mean, if, you don't, if we don't at least start to understand what kingdom means and what it looks like, we don't understand what Jesus has done. Do you think it's not in you and it's something that you enter? How do you enter it? How do you enter it? How do you get that? Okay. I mean, this is why it's important because this is the gospel. Right. You enter it by, by holding fast and believing in and trusting in and living your life based upon the reality that Jesus was God's son. He came and lived this life. He died for our sins and through that death, resurrection, reconciles us and brings us back into kingdom. Which kingdom is the community of God. God's kingdom is not communism, it's not capitalism, it's not democracy, it is monarchy. Monotheism, okay? It is kingdom, right? It's not anything else that we know in terms of government or 
nation state or any of that. It, we, we need to be honest about that. You have a king. I think you can see why it's important to understand what, sort of at least to begin to understand the nature of kingdom, at least in that frame of reference. You got a follow up on that one? Yeah, then what changes once you enter that kingdom? Like what changes about you? That's why I think it's within where it's something that's a mindset that we enter because once we enter into that kingdom, I agree that it's something that we enter into, it's not something that we have. Okay. But I think that once we enter it, it becomes us, it becomes within us. Because God is then within us. Like we accept God in, we're accepting the kingdom, everything that comes with God. So therefore our minds are changed to live a different way. Sure, but that, 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 I think that's due because of the, the other part of that, the spirit, yes, the energy, you start to change because of the spirit. And I, I think you're right. And I, I think you're right too. You just are using kingdom in a much broader sense. And so, I mean, I guess what, if I hear what you're saying, what you're saying is you're internalizing the reality that is kingdom. Like you conform to kingdom ethic and that's, that's all true. But the kingdom is this rule. God's up here, you're down here. Here are the rest of the kingdom citizens. We live in his domain, that is kingdom, right? This is part of God's kingdom, all right? I am part of God's kingdom. So how do you, mar how does that, marry that what you're saying, or not marry, like dif differentiate it from the thought that what I said earlier, like about like the kingdom being like the reality of heaven here and now. Like, is it, okay. that play in? Yes. And I think where this plays in, and why this goes back to why there's a difference, an important difference between whether it's kingdom is here to grasp, or kingdom is. That's the, okay. That was because and, and 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 the two different, depending on how you interpret it, you interpret differently your role and your activity in kingdom. Sure. And so when we say we're going into the world to bring about kingdom, if it's something to grasp, we can go around grabbing it and bringing it about. If it is around us in our midst, we go out to participate in it, all right? And so by our living a life in recognition of kingdom, you know, living and doing things that are in accordance with kingdom principles, we testify and witness to the reign of God. Okay. We don't actually bring about the reign of God. I think that's where the thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven comes in. Sure. Yeah, yeah, we're back to okay, yeah, that. Okay, so follow-up question, last one yeah. for me. That, what you just said, marry that then with Jesus' instruction to, when he says, for instance, just, just a, a sample. Well, he says, here's what I want you to do. Go into the cities, and he says very plainly, heal the sick, and when you do, say, the kingdom just came near you. Where are you seeing a discrepancy? I'm just saying, like, because at that point it would be, like, who, okay. Participating versus who's doing the healing? It. Who's doing the healing? Well, God. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that saying that it's in your midst is just lying your back. It's going to happen. Like you, we we participate with. Gotcha. But there's a fundamental difference between being the effective agent and somehow bringing kingdom near. There's a difference. And that and understanding that kingdom is and we are witnessing to that reality. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's, it may be sort of a slight and seem like so we're cutting hairs now, but I don't think we are. Yeah, because it ultimately goes back to what do we understand about God? Who is God? Is he ultimately sovereign and divine and all-powerful? Or is he relying upon us? It's in the middle. I want to say it's in the middle. All right, We participate with. 
And we're going to, I'll tell you, hang with us through Luke because um, I think after that we are going to do an extended series on missional church and what it means to be missional, really. Okay? And we're going we're gonna to rehash some of this and we're going to take this a lot further because it, it, ultimately, it, it ultimately tells us who are we as Christians, who are we as a church. I mean, this church, what are we going to be like in Zanesville? What are we going to be like in Ohio? And what is the church universal moving towards? Because there's a shift going on. But some of it hinges very much right here on what, what do we think Jesus is saying here? What does he say here? Is it in your midst? Is it in you? Is it there for you to grasp? Does that make sense? Okay, I'm going to say a prayer and then we're going to worship. Heavenly Father, we praise you and worship you for the reality that you are king, that you have created a world, that you have ruled over a world, that you have brought into this world your son, and you have, through his death and resurrection, not only conquered death, not only brought him back to reign and to be our judge and to be our mediator, but through that process, you have reconciled us back to you so that we might enter into your kingdom. And while that may not be a popular idea that we have a king, it is the reality. And Lord, the truth of the matter is being reconciled into your world, your reality, your kingdom means that we are reconciled back into true relationship with you and with each other. So as we come to this time, Lord, I ask that you would help us to strip away all of the confusing discussion, all of the big words, the crazy ideas, and and rest on the knowledge that you are our king. That Jesus is our savior that we are your kingdom citizens. And ultimately, that's it. And so I ask that your spirit draw us nearer and closer to you. May you find our praise and our worship and our adoration worthy. In your son's name we pray and the power of your spirit. Amen.